We've studied the Gospel of Matthew on Lord's Day mornings, and we're coming to the point that is really a kind of climax to the book. Jesus has entered into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a colt, heralded as the king, the Messiah, the one who comes in the name of David, in, in, as a son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet the people, the religious leaders, the, the leadership of the Jews have by and large determined to reject Jesus. And so beginning in chapter 21 and really running through about four or five or six chapters, uh, you just kind of have this pinnacle of confrontation between Christ and the religious leadership of the Jews. And that confrontation comes to a head. They reject him as their Messiah. And Jesus begins to turn then to pronounce judgment upon unbelieving Israel. And so back in chapter 21, we saw that that he performed some symbolic acts of judgment. He went into their temple, the place that was supposed to be the house of God, and saw it filled with people who cared not anything for God and and just cast them out of the temple. Then he went out um, and, and passing into the city, he saw a fruit tree that bore no fruit. And in that he saw the people who were supposed to be the people of God bearing fruit for his glory, who yet lived for themselves. And he cursed the fig tree and it withered and died. And then he turns to them with three parables, parables of judgment and condemnation. There's the parable of the two sons, the one who said, I will do your will, and then did not. The parable of the tenant farmers who did not do the master's will and killed the son. And then the parable of the wedding feast. And in all of these, he's pronouncing judgment upon the people. And then you come to chapter 22, and, and they're, they're finally trying to trap him and trip him up. And, and they come to him with three tests, three challenges. And in every one, he silences them. And yet, their opposition to him is not dissuaded. And so, we come to chapter 23, and really the, begins a, a whole series of very, very strong rebukes against the religious leadership of the people of Israel. He begins by warning his own disciples and the crowds who are gathered around of these so-called shepherds of God's people. And in doing so, indicts them and sets a warning for all of us. And so let's look at our text, which is verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces 
and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In this text, Jesus warns his followers of three wrong attitudes of the scribes and the Pharisees. He warns about their lack of sincerity, their lack of sympathy, and their lack of humility. These are the things that characterize the people who were supposed to be Israel's pastors. And now Jesus condemns them with some really scathing comments throughout the entirety of this chapter. First of all, he warns his followers about the lack of sincerity, the lack of integrity that characterized the scribes and the Pharisees. He says in verse 2, take note again of verse 2 and 3, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They sit on Moses' seat. I think that's probably metaphorical language to say that they have, when they speak the word of God, they have an authority that's derived from the law of Moses that they're supposed to communicate to God's people. Now, Some people actually think this might have been a physical, a literal thing. In fact, back in 1923 in the town of Chorazin, which we know from the scriptures, there was discovered, the archaeologists discovered a stone seat that was inscribed on there, and they called it, they came to call it the seat of Moses. But uh, there's no evidence that it was referred to literally as the seat of Moses before that time. I think rather Jesus has in mind the fact that that these people sit... um, they have a power that's, that's inherent in the fact that they're communicating Moses to the people. So we, we talk today about the county seat, the seat of power. Or we'll talk about the fact that three congressional seats have opened up. In this way, they sort of sat in Moses' seat. It's not the seat itself at the front of the synagogue that, that, was, you know, that was necessarily the, the thing, but the fact that they... Uh, they had this, um, they had this uh, position, this authority. And, and, you know, it is a little bit confusing when you read the beginning of verse 2 because it seems to be by our Lord an acknowledgement of the legitimate authority of the scribes and Pharisees, right? He says, do, whatever, do and observe whatever they tell you. And we all scratch our heads because we're thinking, well, we know some of the things that the scribes and Pharisees said, right? So how is Jesus saying, do what they, what they tell you? It's, it's, it's obviously not a, a blanket endorsement of everything that they say because in, in the rest of the chapter, it'll, it'll be abundantly clear. Jesus will pronounce seven great woes 
upon the scribes and the Pharisees. He will refer to them in harsh terms like blind fools, murderers, vipers, and children of hell. Um, and of course, he's had many confrontations with the Pharisees in the past where he, he, he did not do what the Pharisees said he should do, right? He, his disciples ate with unwashed, ceremonially unclean hands. Um, they plucked grain on the Sabbath, which the Pharisees condemned as working and breaking the heart, the, the point of the Sabbath uh, commandment, the fourth commandment. Uh, and so, so we're, we're obviously faced with a, a bit of a tension here. And I think that statement at the beginning of verse 2, that you should do and observe whatever the scribes and Pharisees tell you to do, has to be taken in context with everything else that Jesus is saying here. It's possible that Jesus, and I think some scholars think that maybe Jesus was speaking ironically or sarcastically because we cannot know the tone of voice that he used. We re, we're reading bare words on a page. It may be that our Lord said something like this. Okay, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have taken it upon themselves to seat themselves in the seat of Moses. So you better listen to whatever they say. But I tell you, don't do what they do, right? So it could be that it is something like that. In any case, I think it is clearly a limited um, endorsement. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying is something like this, that you should heed the words that the scribes and Pharisees read and proclaim in the synagogues because they're reading the law of Moses. And in as much as what they say is a proclamation of the Mosaic law and the Old Testament scriptures, you should listen to it and you should submit to that. After all, there was a lot of right teaching that, that came from the scribes and the Pharisees in one sense. There, there, there was... There was Orthodox doctrine. In fact, of, of the various Jewish sects, the Pharisees were probably more Orthodox than most. If you compare them to the Sadducees, for example, the Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God, which the Sadducees denied. The Pharisees believed in the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body, which the Pharisees, uh, which the Sadducees denied. The Pharisees taught that. Um, that, that the whole of the Old Testament was authoritative, not just the law of Moses, but, but all of the law and the prophets and the writings, that all of that was profitable for, our, for, uh, for us and authoritative for us. They taught that, the, that, that, that there was truly such things as angels and miracles. So, so and, you know, uh, in as much as they were communicating what the word of God had truly said, what the law of Moses had truly written, then, then yes, you should... Um, you should do and observe what they tell you. In fact, this may be also a reference even more narrowly to their judgments that were stated in their role as Israel's judicial court or many of them involved with the courts of the Jews. Like, like so we would talk about um, there are nine seats on the Supreme Court. He says they sit in Moses' seat. That is their they're in the courts, and so you don't disregard 
the judgments of the court. And here's, here's the passage that may refer to that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. If any case arises, the Lord says to his people, if any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide or another, one kind of legal right or another, one kind of assault or another, any case within your towns that's too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place where the Lord God will choose, and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days. You shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions they give you, according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. So it may be, in a more narrow sense, that our Lord is saying to the people, all right, don't just disregard the courts of justice, do and, and observe what they tell you. But then he's moving on to this, that in a deeper sense, in a, in a broader sense, he is going to excoriate them because while they may preach orthodoxy, their whole lives do not conform to it in any way. He says, do not do the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. The problem, Jesus says, with the religious leaders of that day is their insincerity, their hypocrisy, their duplicity. They preached a conservative theology, but it did not make them right with God. In truth, the Pharisees, many of the scribes were of Pharisaical persuasion. These scribes and Pharisees, they hid a personal ambition for self-glorification behind a veneer of doing great work for God. They hid a love for money behind a uh, veneer of, of concern for the details of the law. You remember, you remember that they refused to take care of their aged parents, and the way they did so was to use the Korban law of the Old Testament to dedicate their money and their wealth to God so they couldn't use it to take care of their poor family. And of course, all of this is, is, is hiding hearts that are far from God. Even while they preach orthodoxy, their lives are not pleasing to the Lord. You know, I'm talking to people here who love good preaching, good teaching, people who come and sit an hour on Sunday and listen to a sermon, sometimes sit there in the afternoon and come early for Sunday school and listen to sermon audio during the week and, and love to to quote the scripture, and, and love just good doctrine of the word of God. I want to ask you to be mindful of whether it is true that we practice what we preach. Hypocrisy is one of those things that I think when you begin to talk about it, most everyone who's sensitive 
feels that they must be a hypocrite to some degree. And here's the reason you feel it. Um, we feel it because we are inconsistent, right? Sometimes we, we know what's true, we speak what's true, but we find that we do not do what we want to do. And those things that we want to do, we don't do. And we see that inconsistency, and we begin to think of that as hypocrisy, and I don't think that's the case. This is not to excuse that inconsistency by any means. But I think hypocrisy is deeper than merely inconsistency. Hypocrisy is a kind of inconsistency plus an apathy. It's a kind of inconsistency, and I'm not moved by my inconsistency. It's a kind of inconsistency that can become so habitual that it even can lead a person to being blind to his own inconsistency, as I'm sure was the case with the scribes and the Pharisees. And I just want to tell you that I am fearful, and I hope you will be fearful of ever getting to a place where your inconsistency has become so, where you have become so apathetic to your inconsistency that you become blind to it. May God deliver us from such a fate. The problem with the Pharisees and the scribes was that they were people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They were men who came and sang the hymns and prayed the prayers and said their catechisms. But there's a disconnect somehow between everything that happens on the Lord's Day morning. I speak to us. And between a disconnect between everything that happens on the Lord's Day morning and what happens throughout the rest of the week. A disconnect that in some cases people become unaware of because they've given themselves over to it, then it becomes hypocrisy of a fatal sort. Like Sardis, we become people who have a reputation for being alive, but are dead. Is there one of us who is like that? Who has come and sat in these services since childhood? And yet the word of God seems to be taking no effect on your life? Or is there one of us who is right now, this very moment, in mortal danger of being caught up in the deceitfulness of sin, blind to our own inconsistency, to our own apathy, to living out what we preach. This was the great warning that Jesus gave to his followers. And the scripture is replete with warnings like this. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Right? If a man thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he's deceiving himself. That's not my word, that's the word of God, right? 
or James, whoever says, or John, excuse me, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Beware of the insincerity that characterized those spiritual leaders. It brings the condemnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you confess with your mouth. May it not be true for any one of you, young person, old person, for any of us. May God deliver us. May he be merciful and protect us and keep us from insincerity and hypocrisy. Secondly, these religious leaders were characterized by a lack of sympathy a lack of sympathy. And take a notice again now of verse 4, if you would. Verse 4. Jesus said about them that they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Picture the Pharisees placing the commandments of God, one on top of another, heaping them up into a big pile and then tying them all up into a nice neat package and then lifting this burden and placing it on the shoulders of the people who come to hear them. Picture them piling a cart high with the law of God and then binding uh, the people to the yoke and commanding them to pull that weight. And the law of God is a weighty thing if you give serious attention to it. I know plenty of people who think that they are pretty righteous people, pretty good people. I'm as good as the next guy. I try to be nice. Um, No one's perfect, but, you know, I'm pretty good. And You know what I think about people like that? I think that primarily I think that they haven't yet come to fully appreciate the breadth and the depth of the law of God and the holy character of God that stands behind it. When you truly consider the word of Almighty God and his expectations upon his people, it is a weighty thing indeed. It's a heavy thing. In fact, he's going to go on in the next, later on in this chapter and talk about the weightier matters of the law. Especially true, I think this is, when you get beyond the pharisaical forms of the law and you get right down to the very heart of the law. Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus said, um, the commandment is, Love your neighbor, right? But, but if you go beyond that, if you go deeper, you see what God really wants you to do is, is to love all your neighbors, including your enemy. Or, or he's, the commandment is, right, um, don't, um, don't kill. But he says, behind that and beneath that and the heart of that is this, don't, don't hate your neighbor. Don't have the hard attitude that the kind of thing that leads to murder. Or, or he says, don't commit adultery. And, and behind that and underneath that, the heart of that is this. Don't, 
Don't, give yourself to your one spouse your whole life. Don't divorce your spouse. Don't even lust for someone who's not your spouse. Right? So when you begin to earnestly consider the commandments of God, you begin to realize they are heavy indeed. I mean, who? let me ask you, who has not felt weighed down at times by the holy law of God and your inability to keep it. And, and again, not that there's anything wrong with the law of God. It is holy and just and good, Romans chapter 7. The problem is with our spiritual weakness, and we feel the responsibility to obey the law of God right down to the very heart of it, and, and, and if you earnestly give attention to the law like that, at some point you're going to say, oh, woe is me, this is a heavy burden. Oh, someone help, for I am weak. And now the truth is that these Pharisees, the scribes, were not willing to lift one finger either to carry the law themselves or to help anybody else burdened under them. Like a legalistic parent who lays down the law and he punishes very strictly and sometimes even in selfish anger perhaps, but never gives his child the gospel, never points them to, to Christ. He gives the law with very little grace. Now, this is so important. Law is vital. If you don't have law, well, for one thing, you won't know God. This is why the psalmist delights in the law of God, right? Because the law of God just tells you what God is, what he's like, who he is. You ought to love the law of God. It's holy, it's precious, it's good, including all of its commands. They're right, they're just. But also without the law, you will never know grace. And grace will not be grace apart from the law. So the law is vital, but without grace, what happens? The law crushes you under its own weight. Not because of the fault of the law, but because of your moral weakness. And these Pharisees, they loaded people with law... They gave them the commandments of God, but they knew nothing of the grace of God that would come through the gospel. They missed the whole point of the law in teaching the commandments of the law. But Christ comes and he says to you this morning, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen to me, friends. We do not have a high priest who is unsympathetic to our condition he is able to sympathize with all our weaknesses. He became like us in every respect and yet without sin. So come 
to the throne of God. Come boldly before the throne that you might find mercy there because there you have an intercessor who will give you help in your time of need. What a contrast. You look to the Savior, the one who is characterized by holiness and righteousness, who yet condescends to help and to sympathize with those heavy burdened under the holy law of God. Our Lord and Savior says that his yoke is easy. His yoke. Not the yoke of the Pharisees, but the yoke of Christ. It is sweet. His burden is light. His, his yoke is not easy because he dismisses God's moral law and says, okay, forget about it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, it, it doesn't, I, I'm going to, you're not gonna, ever going to have, there, I'm going to eliminate the accountability for the law. I'm going to abolish it. No, in fact, he said, I have not come to abolish the law, right? Back in chapter 5, I have come to what? Fulfill it. No, his burden is light because he carries it for his people. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Well, the Pharisees, they wouldn't lift a finger, but he was lifted up on the cross to bear the burden of your guilt and shame and sin and rebellion. And then in his mercy, he comes to all of his children with the gift of his indwelling spirit. He himself enters into their souls by his spirit and empowers them with such a transforming power that it is nothing less than a brand new heart with new affections and new desires. And what was once burdensome now becomes our delight, our hope, our desire. This is what happens for all who belong to this Savior, run, man, run, the law declares, the law commands, but gives him neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids him fly and gives him wings. And when those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ are confronted with his law, they say his commandments are not grievous. And they are not for those who've experienced his love. And the more they experience his love and communion with him, the more they obey his law from their hearts. Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This is what the Lord Jesus brings Your Savior does not excuse your sin. No, he is determined to eradicate it, but he does sympathize with you in all of your weakness. And he says, come to me, 
and find grace to help in your time of need. Maybe you're in a time of great need right now. And the weight of the law of God is pressing you down because you, in, you, God has sort of turned you over to your own strength. And he's exposing what is in you naturally. And your sin ought to crush you down into the lake of fire. And if you go on in it, if you prove to be a hypocrite, it will. For all hypocrites will be judged. But if you will cast yourself on the mercy of this one, he is not unmoved. If you will come to him for help, he is full of sympathy and will give you the grace to help. Believe that word. Believe that word. And run to him and rest on it. Don't give in to your sin, but come and find his help. Far different were these scribes and Pharisees. They lacked sincerity. They lacked any sympathy. And thirdly, they were characterized, Jesus says, by a lack of humility. Notice now verse 5 and following. You want to take a look again at the text? Jesus says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad. Phylacteries were those, you've probably seen a picture of it, I think we've got one, of the little boxes, these little boxes that they wore on their heads, um, strapped on with a kind of uh, uh, twine or, or leather strap of some sort. And, and Jesus said, you know, the Pharisees, they keep making their phylacteries bigger and bigger so that everyone will see a mile away that they are in prayer, that they are remembering God's law. They have it on literally right on their heads, right? A literal sort of take on, what is it, Deuteronomy, where he says, let the word of God be in your, in your heart and, and let it be on your mind and around your, your hand. And, oh, no, they wanted people to know that. So they made their phylacteries big, Jesus said, and they make their fringes long. These are the tassels uh, that hang off the corners of their, of their garments uh, as spelled out in Numbers chapter 15 and other places. And, and these people, and, and it was to remind them of the commandments of God. And, and of course, these people who were very concerned with the, um, that, that, they, that they appeared to people to be Great religious leaders, they made their tassels longer and longer so that from far away anybody could see that this is a person who really and truly is something special before God. Jesus says, verse 6, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi, teacher, master. They love that. They love being called that by others, but they love the honor of men. But Jesus said, my disciples have a different heart. Verse 8, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, 
You're all brothers. Call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. It's a whole different attitude, a whole different spirit that ought to characterize Jesus' followers. I don't think this means necessarily that there's no place for distinction in roles of any kind between the people of God or that you should never speak terms of respect for leaders at all, any more than I think that the prohibition back in chapter 5 against the declaring of oaths means that we cannot take an oath in court. Jesus had a bigger point, right? His point was you, don't, you shouldn't need an oath. You, you should just be a truthful person. And the point here is that this is not the kind of thing that, that, that should be your heart. This is what you're seeking after. You want, you, you, you're, you're looking for this acclamation from, from everyone around you. Jesus says, rather, in verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. You know what? He was. He was. The greatest among you. He was. He became like a servant. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and humbled himself. And so his followers do the same. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, said that he was willing to become a menial labor, do menial work in order to serve the Corinthians who thought of themselves as culturally superior to people like that. Brothers and sisters, what does the scripture tell us? Outdo one another in showing honor, honor to others. I tell you, you're going to have to fight the instinct to compare yourself with others. Right? Fight the instinct to compare yourself with others, to feel superior when you are highly regarded by others or to feel depressed when you are not very highly esteemed. Both of them are symptoms that we are thinking too much about ourselves. Get your mind on serving others. How can I bless them? How can I edify them? How can I meet that need? How can I take that little one and strengthen him in Christ. You know what? This is, this is just, uh, th- this is not what characterized the scribes and Pharisees. They used people because they loved themselves. Christ said, you spend yourself because you love the people of God. This is what characterizes my disciples. Listen very carefully to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we dare to classify ourselves or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. And when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. 
remember this, that the kingdom of heaven is only made up of little children. Jesus says, the king, my disciples, true spiritual leadership is made up of people who are characterized by humility. So he says in verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, I believe this, that humility is very nearly, it is very near to the heart of Christianity. If you humble yourself, then you are in line for mercy. If you are proud, self-sufficient, self-righteous, determined that you're going to think your own thoughts and make your own decisions and go your own way, then you will be resisted by God at every turn. God gives grace to the humble. So Jesus has spent 12 verses now condemning, warning his hearers against people who were thought of as very religiously pious people, religious leaders, in fact, experts in orthodoxy. And I think there is a warning, a sober warning here for all of us, lest we be like them. There are religious people, even religious leaders, who fall and will fall under Christ's condemnation, who are even orthodox in their theology as stated, and yet who are not religious primarily for God and for others, but for themselves. And this should cause us to be sober indeed. How easily our hearts grow cold toward the Lord, grow self-centered. How easily can we become hypocritical? Preaching, but not practicing what we preach how easy it would be, apart from the mercies of God, for us to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and so in the end prove to be hypocrites. You know, we we ought to all of us say this morning, I hope you will say in this time what I've been trying to say before the Lord this week. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me. I'll close with these words from the scripture. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, please, by your mercy, lay hold of the one in here who is closest to hardness of heart, hypocrisy that just will lead them to hell. And I pray that you would stand in your mercy between them and their old flesh, that you would sanctify, that you would cause this word to be that which turns their hearts back to you. We pray that you would examine all of us and keep us from hypocrisy, we pray. In Christ's name. As the piano begins to play here in a moment, we're just going to take a few minutes, a couple of minutes anyway, to reflect on the sermon and to pray. And so I'm going to ask you, just right where you are, as much as you're able, to just put everything else aside, not think about the person sitting next to you or what to do next, but just be with the Lord. And let this word have its good effect in your heart to preserve or to rebuke, to warn. You just take a moment and pray while the pianist plays. Amen. I think if you want to just take one, one thing away from you that you could just hold on to easily in your mind, I would, I would make it this. Hypocrisy is inconsistency plus apathy. And may God keep us from getting that right. And if, it, and if hypocrisy is united with apathy long enough, then it ends in blindness. You don't even see it. Not only do you not care, you don't even see it. And that's when you're perhaps beyond hope. 
But right now, if God, if your heart is sensitive, then there's hope for us because we have a sympathetic Lord. So run to him.